Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry podcast. Today, you'll be getting another special edition from my colleague, our founder and chairman, Jim Weiss, who is a regular guest host, probably moving into just host territory on the podcast. And Jim had a chance to sit down with Dr. John O'Brien, who is the CEO and president of the National Pharmaceutical Council, a longtime healthcare expert who has worked in the government for HHS, uh, has focused on public policy, really is just such a lovely individual. And he and Jim get a chance to look back and talk about what the National Pharma Council does, the fact that they're celebrating their 70th anniversary this year, which predates a Medicaid, which is a Medicare, sorry, which is kind of crazy, and a number of other industry associations. And then they get into some of the areas of expertise of both John and Jim, and that's things like drug pricing, Medicare drug negotiation, um, the fact that, you know, there are just so many critical decisions that are being made. The fact that Congress right now is looking at pharmacy benefit manager reform, PBM, uh, which is critical to so many of our clients. So we hope that you enjoy this amazing conversation. And as always, we appreciate feedback. So sit down, grab a cup of your favorite beverage and enjoy the show. So I'm with one of my favorite people, Dr. John O'Brien. Thank you for being here for uh, the Real Chemistry podcast. It's obviously an important topic as we head into an election year in particular. Uh, We've read a lot. We've heard a lot. And I always feel like it's best to sit down with the experts and get the real story on, you know, drug pricing, reform, policy, and all the rest, and also make some clarifications about where you are, what you do, what the mission is, and all of that. So we're going to focus on that. Just a first question, you know, what kind of doctor are you, man? So I have my doctorate in pharmacy and my uh, master's in, in public health. And uh, you know, you've heard me say this before, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster when I grew up. I should be at, a, at the MLB playoffs right now. But uh, mom got sick when I was a kid. And uh, when I saw firsthand the difference between medicines that work and medicines that don't work and what a profound difference they can really make in your family's life, I became really interested in medicines more than I love sports. Wow. And I went to the Newhouse School where most of the famous, you know, uh, broadcasters went and I got to meet and have met, you know, Mike Tirico and Bob Costas and my own fraternity brother, Ian Eagle, and his son and so many others that have come out of of that incredible place. But I was going to graduate and I thought I was going to do communications for the Rolling Stones and Madonna and, you know, all these guys too. And then, you know, took a sharp left turn into Metamucil and Pepto-Bismol and the world of healthcare. I now I was never able to escape. So with that, how does somebody who comes from the background you come from 
end up at the National Pharmaceutical Council? What was the journey there? And, you know, then I really want to just talk a little bit about what the organization is and does. You know, I, I'm in- incredibly grateful to have joined the organization as CEO in 2021. Um, I- I'd have to say that uh, my career picked me more than I picked that career. I mean, after what I saw with my family growing up, I went from from pharmacy school to working for a pharmaceutical company on the science side, then moved over to government affairs and ended up working for pharma in, in policy during the rollout of the uh, Medicare Part D program. God, it's hard to believe, you know, that, that that's been so long ago. And then uh, from there, went into academia, did a couple tours of duty uh, in the government, and then spent some time at a health plan. And when the National Pharmaceutical Council, an organization that I've looked up to for, you know, my whole career, reached out and said, hey, you, you understand medicines, you understand reimbursement, you understand the role of government. Um, I, again, I, I just felt like it was a dream come true. All right. Well, look, tell us, I mean, you were at pharma and, you know, you've been on many sides of this discussion and debate and policy that's so important to so many in America. Um, NPC celebrating its 70th anniversary, which is kind of hard to believe. I think it's been around longer than Medicare, (laughs) um, which is, again, you know, interesting. And most of the industry associations, it's older. When you said you looked up to or you respected it, can you tell us a little bit, bit about why and, and maybe talk about a little bit of its history and what it is and what's, it, what's its intention? Yeah, so the, the National Pharmaceutical Council is a 70-year-old health policy research organization that has conducted research and compiled evidence on really whatever the important issue of the day was at that time. You know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm in the office late, I'll, I'll go back and read the, the board minutes and whatever the conversation was, whoever the people you wanted to have talked to, like those were the people that were meeting with our board. And that's the research that, that, that NPC did. So today we are a health policy organization with 20 of the leading pharma and biotech companies on our board. We conduct important health policy research that's policy relevant, and then we communicate it with impact. We have a really experienced team of researchers that understand how the supply chain functions, how it may not be working in the best interest of patients, what are the important research questions to ask, and and most importantly, they don't just want to see a publication get written and published, right? Their goal is to ask the right questions, do the right research, get it published, and ultimately see it be used by patient advocacy organizations, manufacturers, payers, policymakers, to ultimately make a difference in health policy so that patients get access to innovation. How does it do that? I know you come from the pharma world and pharma itself where you lobbied, and you had maybe potentially, arguably, more direct impact. It sounds like this is one of those think tanks that you find in and around D.C. called often nonpartisan. And, you know, obviously there's skin in the game given the membership. But tell us the difference. How does it operate relative to a lobbying organization? And how does it have impact if you're not directly lobbying? You know, one of the one of the things that you're doing as a lobbyist is always trying to get in front of policymakers to tell them your side of the story. 
we're not a lobbying organization. We don't advocate for specific policies, but the research that we do asks important questions to help shape the policy landscape. And, you know, one of the the coolest moments that, that I've had in this job is uh, wrote a piece that Stat ultimately picked up about the 340B program, what it was intended to do, you know, 30 some years ago and, and what it's like now. And, uh, you know, we posted that piece on, on LinkedIn and I heard from members of Congress. I heard from health policy directors on committees of jurisdiction um, to see DMs and comments from the people that are actually trying to solve the inefficiencies of the program was really cool. So if we do our job correctly, when we do our job correctly, our research informs a conversation and we get asked to come in as subject matter experts and really get to stay out of the lobbying and advocacy game. What is freeing about that? It sounds like maybe there's something about it that is kind of good because you're not then paid to get an outcome and you don't just pound one part of the pavement, if you will, or, or your side of the argument. Does it free you up to be more open-minded? And are there situations where your research may or may not help everyone's cause that's a member? How does that go? Well, you know, our, our research questions come from staying current, right? So our team is constantly reading, constantly talking to patient advocacy organizations, constantly hearing from providers, and most importantly, meeting with our members and, and learning more and anticipating the challenges that they're going to face. So if you're staying current about what's happening in policy and you hear people describing problems, it is very freeing to get to ask the questions that say, is this a problem that one patient in Florida is having with their formulary? Or is this something that's happening nationwide that not everybody understands? And when we do the research to measure a problem, oftentimes that can bring a problem to light and create sort of the, the impetus for, for policy change. But sometimes people propose policies that, um, may not be fully informed by research. So the other kind of research that we do um, is to evaluate some of the solutions that quite frankly, Jim, don't, don't always meet the problem they're trying to solve. Well, I would imagine you're bringing some solutions they aren't discussing or you know have the potential to change the dialogue that's happening. Has that happened? Do you have examples of that or even from the past in the organization? You know. I, I, I'm sitting here wondering, and I'm asking the basic question of, is it passive or is it more of a convener and a catalyst for change in the healthcare system? Is that the potential? I think it's all of the above, Jim. You know, sometimes we ask a question that not everybody is thinking about. And then you publish that research and people go, oh, like I've heard this was happening. Thank you for quantifying this problem. Now, what do you think are the, the right solutions to solve it? Um, back before there was a PCORI, um, NPC was convening people to talk about what does real world evidence look like? What does patient-centered outcomes research look like? What are patient reported measures and, and why are they important? So over our history, and, and, and certainly this is part of our future, we're going to continue to ask the 
write research questions. We're going to continue to bring folks together to either hear their description of the problem or think together to come up with evidence-based solutions. But at the end of the day, there's nothing more important than seeing the research we do be cited by policymakers or being able to look back and say, hey, here's a payment rule. The government finally listened. Patients aren't getting the access they need. And and now they're unwinding that. I mean, do you think we've had success, can declare victory around, you know, Medicare price negotiation? I don't know. You're nonpartisan, so you don't have a stance on it. I don't know what the research showed or didn't, but a federal judge just denied an injunction to stop the program and all 10 of the drug companies on that initial list that we saw have agreed to enter the negotiation process. It seems like government price setting is a done deal. That's the way forward. Could we see modifications to this or changes? Or is it just something we need to accept and deal with and you guys can continue to show research that may keep it status quo or change it? You know, let's talk about that. Let me reframe a question just quick. Is this such a bad thing? Does it have to be? You know, I sometimes look at a situation like this and say, wait, just like you just said, more patients coming in and getting access. You know, what if it ends up that there's a world in the pharmaceutical future that more patients can get on the drugs because of this? Is that nirvana? Yeah, let's, let's first start with your first question, right? Which is the Inflation Reduction Act has some parts to it that will help more patients get access to medicines at the pharmacy counter. And you know that affordability at the pharmacy counter is the thing that I care most about. The challenge is the way that the government wants to pay for it or the way that the Congressional Budget Office scored it, if you will, is through this Medicare drug price negotiation program. Now, First of all, I I do not think this is a negotiation. I'm not even entirely sure that it's legal. Um, But my concern today is that there is so much uncertainty in the process that they're describing that it has the real potential to threaten the innovation that you and I and other patients both value. So for example, the statute says that the drugs that are selected for this process and ultimately have a maximum fair price established have to be covered. Now, that sounds like plain English to, to you know, the layperson, but you and I both know that I can cover a drug, meaning it's available first tier, the discount that's being provided is actually going to lower the patient's out-of-pocket cost, or covered could mean it's going to be on tier six, and you're going to have to step through a number of drugs that your doctor didn't want to prescribe for you before you actually get the drug that is best for you. So that's that's just one area where there's uncertainty. And I, and I think there are a few more that really have the potential to, to threaten innovation. When I read what's being referred to as the guidance, right? When, when CMS said, this is how we're going to operate this process. I don't see clarity in how they're going to select a therapeutic alternative. Are they going to select a low-cost, politically expedient therapeutic alternative? Or are they going to choose a drug that a 
a physician, a guideline developer would actually consider to be an appropriate therapeutic alternative for a patient. Are they going to select drugs that have the same features and benefits that the patients who are going to use them will find important? And ultimately, once they answer all those questions, somehow they're going to go through a qualitative, comparative, clinical effectiveness process and land on something that is very quantitative, and that is a price. So I'm not sure how a manufacturer is supposed to plan to generate evidence to have a meaningful conversation with the government about what the maximum fair price should be if the government isn't being clear about what evidence it's going to value and how it's ultimately going to land on the price that they set for the medicine. I mean, is that a role for NPC to play a broker and you know, partnering, maybe a public-private partnership that occurs through the research? I mean, again, I'm more of a catalyst. I know you're not really an administrative organization in that sense, but maybe through the research, because I was saying with Medicare price negotiation, CMS is pushing further into the area of value assessment. Is that going to be an important factor here? Not just that. I think what you're saying is music to my ears. On one hand, there has never been a more important time for the work that NPC does, right? And, And if you look back over our history, if you look back over our lifetimes, We've cured hepatitis C. We're now treating breast cancer at home with a tablet. Um, We're not just turning HIV into a chronic illness. We're now preventing it with a pill that you took once a day. Now it's a shot you can get every couple months, and it's probably going to be a shot that you get once or twice a year. But patients don't always get access to these medicines. And the IRA is just one more element um, in a very hostile environment for the pharmaceutical industry. I'm also concerned about the arbitrage opportunities that, that, that are out there where people aren't purchasing medicines based on the value that it offers and the lower total cost of care that can ensue, but how much margin they can make off of things like PBM negotiations, the 340B discount, hospitals buying low and, and, and selling high. But back to your question about value and whether we're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act or whether we're talking about what employers ultimately value. We recently hired Dr. John Campbell. John has devoted his career to health economics and outcomes research and this conversation around value assessment. And he most recently served as ICER's Senior Vice President of Health Economics. So he is at NPC now to help our members create the evidence that whether we're talking about the role of HTA in government or that we're trying to come up with ways that employers can make sure that gene therapy is appropriately valued and reimbursed for their employees. So yes, I, I think it is both a continuation of the work that we've done in the past and also a really exciting time for us going forward. So how do you think we got here? I mean, how did we get to a hostile environment? And, and you know, it, does MPC play a role in creating a less hostile environment, one where maybe there's a little more? It sounds like your new hire, you know, is going to help a lot um, and, and probably will become a resource to 
policymakers, but is one of the problems just because people come and go in Congress that make these rules and, you know, you get them up to speed, they're all ready to make a vote and then they're voted out. I mean, is that one of the issues? Like, how did we get to this more hostile land that we're in? You know, one of the things that I learned early on in my career working in a community pharmacy in Palm Bay, Florida, is that the care you receive and the medicine you get is more of a function of the insurance card in your wallet than what the doctor prescribed. And if you fast forward from from the late 90s to today, we have really seen a change in benefits. And patients being asked to pay more out of their own pocket without an understanding of how much the medicine really costs, what they're being asked to pay, and where all the money goes in between, I think has really caused the problem that we're in today. So whether you're a Democrat from New York serving on the Senate Finance Committee or a conservative Republican living in the villages, when you go to the pharmacy counter and are asked to pay more because your deductible reset, because your prescription drug plan now has a deductible for drugs where they didn't before, where your health plan has moved your medicine to a co-insurance tier instead of a copay tier, I feel like that's how we got to, to where, we, where we are today. I mean, you know, Congress has its hands full at the moment, but the legislative focus over the past year has shifted to the pharmacy benefit manager. I think we're kind of talking about that here um, for folks who really aren't tracking why is Congress looking at PBMs and what impact could the PBM reforms have on the health system costs and patient access? And then obviously those aren't your members. So what is the relationship between pharma and PBMs and all the various stakeholders? I mean, is there some way we can help our audience understand all the players here? Yeah, you know, Jim, I, I think first it's not just employers. It's, it's employers. It's the Federal Trade Commission. It's state lawmakers. It's state budget directors. And, and ultimately, it's employers who are recognizing that the way that we purchase drugs or select drugs based on the margin that can be made, as opposed to the value that they create, might not be the best mousetrap for them. So let's step back for a minute. We talk about PBMs. We are now in an era of big PBM. There are three very large fortune, what, top 10 companies that by and large touch 80% of the prescriptions that are reimbursed in the United States. But they're not just PBMs. They're pharmacy benefit managers that own or are owned by an insurer. They have their own specialty pharmacy. They have something new called an offshore GPO, like that negotiates with the drug company and then the PBM negotiates with them. There is so much money moving around between the left pocket and the right pocket of these companies that it's really hard to follow the dollar. What concerns me the most is that these entities are really functioning like the troll under the bridge. And if you don't pay the troll under the bridge, the patient doesn't get access to the medicine. So how this legislation, and, and really more important, this national conversation 
can shine light on this shadowy system and ultimately move us towards a system that has the right incentives to help patients get well and stay healthy and help employers see lower total medical costs, that's the role that I want to play. Well, exactly. So, I mean, how did these guys get in here and why are there trolls under the bridge? I guess there's money to be made. That's a simple enough answer. But, you know, it, could that be busted up? Could that be the result of all this scrutiny and discussion? And are you guys going to be focused on that? I know I'm not trying to turn this into a them and us world. It's more, is it just too many hands touch the drug before it gets to the patient? Can we just get it to the patient more directly? That's an excellent question. I think what you've described is a system where everybody in the supply chain is taking a piece of the list price of the medicine. So when you ask the question about why drug prices are going up, nobody is acknowledging the fact that somebody is getting paid based on how much money they're pulling out of that price. But I think there's there's a couple different ways to, to look at this, right? I, I can say pharmacy benefit managers and all of the other entities in the supply chain are getting a piece of our nation's prescription drug dollar without actually discovering medicines or really doing anything innovative. And anytime someone comes to try to bust them up or say, you can't do this, they evolve their model and it's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole, right? First it was rebates, then it was offshore GPOs. Now there's new research that says that they're making all of their money off of the different data fees or the specialty pharmacy access fees that they're charging. So I would like that game of whack-a-mole to end, whether it's through more regulation, more oversight, more transparency, et cetera. At the same time, I want to be optimistic because some really smart people have gone to work for some of these companies, and they understand that the current system isn't sustainable. So I think about people like Mustafa Kamal at, uh, at the new CEO at, at Prime Therapeutics. Um, David Brailer in your backyard recently went to work for Cigna as chief health officer. And um, Pat Conway recently took over as the head of OptumRx. These are people who understand the importance of value-based care. These are people who understand why employers are offering prescription drug benefits to their employees. And these are the people that understand how more data, more interoperability might actually be able to create the system that you just described, where we're competing on the value of a medicine. Prices are going down instead of up. And people in the middle are being paid because people are getting well and staying healthy as opposed to because they're taking a larger piece of the drugs price. Well, and sometimes it works. I mean, so, you know, OptumRx is fine when you want to get your generic metropolol and, you know, your uh, statin, you know, that you need to take every day that's preventive and it comes to your doorstep. I mean, I think there's some positive benefits to what they bring to the patient as long as it all works. It's kind of when it doesn't work. Now there's higher prices and all of that. Um I guess it sounds like you're optimistic saying we need both we need all or at least some of these players, you know, it's not like pharma can change their model and start selling direct 
to the public and I bring up the name because we always talk about him is Mark Cuban, right? And what his model will bring and the issue of generics and biosimilars. How does that affect what's going on? Does it help the situation, complicate it further, solve some of these problems? What is your view on that? And are we going to see more research coming on that soon? You know, the the reason that the reason that we see more and more disruptive business models out there is because employers are sick of the status quo. Companies don't want to run their own health plan. They want to make airplanes or sell coffee or run an award-winning healthcare marketing right. firm, for example, right? right? So many of them haven't been aware of how this system works because they simply hire somebody, let's call them an employer benefits consultant, and say, go out and negotiate on our behalf and tell us who we should pick. But what we're learning through research is that these consultants might not necessarily be making the decisions that are best for the employer. They might be making the decision that's best for them or the businesses that they're actually selling on behalf of. So when you think of things of, accumulators and maximizers. Have you heard of these new alternative funding programs? Yes, we have. And that's why I'm at, I mean, this is an important question. I want some advice, you know, running and funding companies. What should we do in this regard? And I, I have to say, compared to five years ago, I do think there's more choice and there are more interesting ideas. And I, I actually do think, look, this is what I always say. Necessity is the mother of invention. And at some point, you do have to evolve things. So I see a, dy a dynamic thing happening. I do think people are aware, and NPC could play a big role in showing us employers how to do it right. Is that possible? Yeah, so we, we do a lot of research in the employer benefit space. We're trying to expose more of how this works. We're trying to help people understand that excluding a drug from coverage and sending people to a manufacturer's patient assistance program based on how much money they make is not a health benefit. It's a form of discrimination that flies in the face of what the Affordable Care Act was intending to create with essential health benefits. We're going to lean in more on this research so that we can go to employer conferences and, and, and publish uh, and, and employer newsletters and contribute to those who want to build toolkits to help employers understand that you can build a better mousetrap. You know, it's, I don't, I don't know if I should say this out loud, but, um, you know, Amazon has a pharmacy and they take shipment directly from manufacturers and they operate their own plan for their employees. There's, there's no middleman. And they've now taken that model and they've, put it on their app. And through that app, you can not only find out what your price is going to be, but what price you'll pay at whatever different pharmacy you'll go to. And they're starting to bring that technology to consumers. They're saying, hey, you can go to this pharmacy and pay this price. Oh, there's this coupon you can use. I don't understand why we can't leverage that kind of technology so that we have more competition on medicines based on what consumers are actually looking for 
as opposed to treating drugs as an arbitrage opportunity so I can generate more rebate revenue and use that to lower my premiums. Well, do you see that as a reality in the future? I mean, I think the market can go there. Do you think the manufacturers understand that dynamic? I think Are they, they partnering with those technology companies or not yet? I think they understand that dynamic. And, you know, you, you know, as someone who works for an organization of competitors that I don't tell them what to do and we never talk about what they should do together. But I think as individuals, they're in an interesting spot. They, they see some of these disruptive models and they're still working within the current system. So the, the current system is going to say, hey, don't you dare give the same discount to those guys that you're giving to me. So again, I, I just think we, we have these large entities that want to make money based on the price of a medicine and not choose a formulary because a drug is going to offer value to the employer and actually lower that employer's total medical cost. And so when pharma says to us all the time, and we help pharma put those communications together, that the drugs that we create lead to the next drugs, is that still fundamentally true? I mean, is that, I think there are a few bad apples in that, but for the most part, is that a truth? I mean, you're, you're working for a nonprofit. You could go, it sounds like you could work for any profit company and help them work a smarter employer deal. So why here, why now? Is there an opportunity for pharma to tell the story more clearly? You know, I, I think one of the scariest moments I've had in, in industry is someone drawing two curves, right? One is the increasing cost of research as medicines become more complex and clinical trials become more expensive, et cetera. And the other is the decreasing amount of margin as a result of more people using the 340B program, more expectations of rebates to fuel other businesses and, and, and side ventures. So again, if we continue to focus on how much money can be extracted from medicines and the reality of a product is different than the expectation of a product, then the revenue that they have on hand to contribute to future research and development gets smaller. And that is our industry's business model. And it's one of the things I think the Congressional Budget Office got wrong, where they said, hey, we can take billions of dollars out of this industry and we're only going to see eight, 10, 15 fewer medicines over the next decade. That is entirely not true. But I, I, just, I, I just can't get away from the fact that all of these little forms of margin extraction have served as small cuts into a really important industry. And I feel like the Inflation Reduction Act now has us really close to hitting an artery. I would say we did already because there's this kind of big drugs shortage issue in chemotherapy. So my own wife going through it, I feel it very personally. Don't you think that that situation is at least climate wise caused by what's going on? I mean, we can't even get 
people incentivized at the generic level, it's down to what it, you know, to a situation where we can't supply our cancer patients with the fundamental medicine that we know works over 30, 40 years. And it's not that expensive. So these three big companies we talk about, right, form buying relationships with big wholesalers. And if you're a generics manufacturer and you're not selling to one of those big buyers, you start to ask yourself the question, is it worth me keeping this facility open anymore, right? So if six becomes four and four becomes three and three has a manufacturing issue or a tornado hits it, right, suddenly you have a, a, a real shortage issue. So again, I'm, I'm on the side of those who are discovering medicines and helping them get to patients to make tomorrow's challenges, today's cures. And I'm on board with those really important companies that when a medicine goes off patent, society gets to celebrate the fact, right? Like generic chemotherapy, whoever thought that we would get to a place in this country, right, where we have generic versions of cancer medicines. And all the cancer medicines that we're talking about today will someday be generic or biosimilar. But it's all because of the incentives that we have in the marketplace. And if you start destroying those incentives with regulation or by trying to squeeze more margin out of that system without being a drug discoverer or developer or manufacturer yourself, you have the potential, unfortunately, to harm patients on all sides of that. It's equation. harming patients now. I mean, I think voters have to understand that that example is real life and now right, as to what could happen if we don't have the right information that you're going to be bringing out to people involved in these policies, right? I mean, look at other countries. I mean, they don't have access to these medicines. You're right. You're right. And, and you, you hinted at something earlier, which is the reason that I wake up in the morning. And that is a system that appropriately values improvements in survival, a system that appropriately values keeping people out of the hospital and helping them avoid, you know, hard, bad outcomes. And we have so many leading minds in this industry that are talking about things like value-based care. I really, really, really want to be part of the team that says, hey, we have a lot of innovation in pharmaceutical technology we need as much innovation in reimbursement so we can figure out how to help these end users ultimately get access to these medicines. Right. And these are drugs that have been around for 40 years. We're not talking about anything that is that far out or isn't proven. These are proven to save lives and extend lives. These are these absolutely are, proven. These are these more are, than anything else. Absolutely. They are they are proven to extend lives more than than anything else. And yet we are trying to pay for them with a system that was built for statins 25 years ago. Right. So there you go. Um, all right. So what do we do now? I mean, what do you, I guess in your role, how does NPC change that? You know, we're going to continue to do the kind of research that describes the problem so that policymakers can make the right decision. So Let's pivot back to the, the drug price negotiation program for a while. Nobody knows more about the value of a medicine 
or has done more research to define the value of a medicine than the developer and manufacturer of that product itself. When I look across this industry, I see people like Jan Hansen at Genentech and Christian Wynn at Lilly, Phil Naughton at Takeda, right? These are, these are people who understand how to generate the evidence to help people make the right decisions about the value of a medicine. And we have more and more commercial leaders who are becoming fluent in this conversation as well, right? People like Chris Mansell at BMS and, and Christine Marsh at, at Beringer Engelheim. These are commercial leaders who understand the appropriate way to generate evidence and use that evidence in a conversation with a plan sponsor. Unfortunately, the government is not seeking as much of their input as they should. So there's one research paper that I have in, in, in Press Now and in a journal called Value in Health. And it calls on the government to do a couple, three things. One is to leverage the health economics and outcomes research expertise that exists within the manufacturer community. The other is to learn more about the appropriate methods. Health technology assessment is a tool. It's not a rule. And unfortunately, there are people out there that want to use HTA as pseudoscience and use it as a fig leaf to justify price controls, and that's not good for patients. What needs to happen is we need to have a two-way street between manufacturers and, and, and people who are participating in health technology assessment activities, be it the government through its negotiation program or, or other forms of purchasing. But the government needs to have a transparent and reproducible process. They need to communicate openly about what they're going to value. And they should really seek the input of manufacturers when deciding what it is that they should value. That's not at all what they built. When they put out the proposed guidance, they wanted manufacturers to destroy their notes when they were walking out of the building. And they may not do that today in the revised guidance, but the revised guidance still has a word limit. How do you put together an evidence packet about the value of a medicine and trying to fit it into a you know, 3,000 word limit on a government website? Well, I, I guess that begs a question. Do you think the industry and all the pharma companies get this and do they fund it enough within their own companies? I mean, I know my own experience that, you know, you're not at a company anymore. Do you think you had the right staff and resources to do the job you needed to do to fulfill this mission? You know, I, I mentioned some companies that, that I feel are, are leading the charge. There are certainly other examples around, you know, the industry. When ASI launched their Alzheimer's treatment, they came out with their own value assessment and dared others to question their math. So I, I, so I feel like we're seeing more and more companies investing in that kind of expertise. And, and that's a good thing. And we, we want to work with all of them. But the research that we're doing identifies the fact that if the government doesn't value that evidence, we're going to see delayed launches. We're going to see fewer indications. And we're ultimately going to see a chilling effect on that very evidence that we're talking about. And that makes it really hard for an oncology organization who wants to develop a new set of guidelines. Could you imagine what our guidelines would look like today if nobody did a nine, 10-year outcomes 
research program because the government is going to set the price of their medicine at year nine? Right. No, exactly. I mean, I, it's incentive-based. Everything is. But at the end of the day, being more adept at this, and I guess let's get to the self-serving part, shouldn't there be more NPC members? Is 20 enough? It doesn't make sense. It, why isn't everybody a member and why don't we have a really robust staff to help supplement and maybe even better yet, create you know sort of unassailable third-party research that ultimately helps all the parties understand these issues better and apply them for patients? Well, I, I certainly love the members that are around our board table now, and they provide us with really important resources to do the research that we've discussed. But, and, and you're right. You know, we, we run a lot of the, the same circles, and, and there are a lot of companies out there, many of whom didn't exist you know, when, when this organization was started or even 10 years ago. So we're going to continue to do the work that we do and engage with every member of the pharmaceutical and biotechnology community and show them the work that we're doing and invite them to join us as we uh, continue to generate the evidence that we need for the future. Great. It sounds like we need more members. So we'll leave it at that. But I always ask two questions of my guests and you're not getting out of here without it. You know, I, I always like to ask what your guilty pleasure is. Huh? Well, I, I have two. Or right? not so I guilty. Have, I have, <laughs> well, you, you're recording this, right? So, Correct. Um, but we, you know. So, so I, have, I, have, I have two guilty pleasures. One we were talking about before we got started. You know, I am an instrument-rated private pilot who's really close to having their commercial rating. And when I get up to 11,000 feet and I'm flying across the country and listening to air traffic control and following, you know, their instructions – it's really like my favorite form of meditation because I can just leave the rest of the world behind and, um, you know, in, in enjoy being up in the clouds. But the, the second thing is, is one that you also know well, right, which is that Ashley and I serve on the Kennedy Center Circles Board, one of their, their fundraising organizations. And I really enjoy few things as much as walking next door to the Kennedy Center. Um, I'm a musicals guy. Um, I do love the symphony. I'll occasionally check out the, the ballet, but the Kennedy Center recently had D Nice perform his club quarantine uh, concert live. So he brought in like all of DC's leading voices on, on hip hop. And we had a hip hop concert in the Kennedy Center Opera Hall. So I'm a, I'm a fan of flying and I'm a huge fan of the performing arts. Well, great, great segue into the other question. Uh, if you were stranded on a desert island, what album would you listen to? What's an album? Well, oh, good, I'm just kidding. Point. I'm just kidding. Good I'm point. just kidding. I'm, I'm older. I'm older than I look. I, I can't yeah. get away with that. Um, there are albums. Will you Will you give me a double album? Sure. Uh, uh, they're told that counts. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band live seventy five to eighty five. Perfect. I mean, you know, I can't wait to see him live. He's delayed his concerts, as you know, because he has. An illness that will be addressed by the industry you and I so proudly work for. So I can't thank you enough for being here. Um, it's always a pleasure. And uh, keep up the good work. And, you know, can't wait to see Bruce when he's back on the road, thanks to the work of our pharmaceutical industry. Thanks, Jim. It's great Bye. to be with you. 
Want more episodes of The Real Chemistry Podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.